Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. If you have not visited with us before, we extend to you a very special welcome. Uh, I want to mention to those of you who are regular attenders, those of you who are members, in the bulletin you have the little white sheet just in case you forgot to fill that out and uh, put it in the plate. Please do that and then just leave it um, on the, the coffee bar in the welcome room out by the offices after the service, if you would, as we affirm new elders or an elder and deacons. We're very excited about that. And also talk with Sarah after the service about support, how to get support to her if you have not uh, done that yet and you would like to participate in her trip, her mission trip coming up in the next few weeks. Um. <clears throat> Just to say to those of you who are new, we are going through a study in the Gospel of Mark, and we're toward the end. Uh, by the way, we let me also mention, uh, Lisa Larson fell when she was coming in this morning in the parking lot. Her husband's taking her to the hospital, so we want to be remembering uh, Lisa, if you would, please. In uh, our study of Mark, we are toward the end, chapter 14, we begin today, and after this week, we get into that last night where Jesus shared uh, communion with his disciples, instituted the Lord's Supper, and, and, and then he's out to pray and arrested and crucified and then resurrected. So, mo- most of the Gospels spend a strong portion of the time in this very part, this last week or so of Jesus' life and ministry here on the earth. John spends uh, half of his gospel on this period of time and focus. And so as we move into Mark 14, prepare your heart for the very reason that Jesus came was to die. And this night that we're reading about in Mark 14 was a night of celebration, and yet there was a lot about his death in that time as well. In 1958, J.I. Packer uh, said that one of the most urgent tasks of of, of the church in evangelical Christendom was the recovery of the gospel. Now think about that. In 1958, he says more than anything else, we need to recover the gospel. In 2014, you absolutely cannot write a Christian book without gospel in the title. If it's in the title, that's an extra sale, I don't know, three, four thousand, maybe thirty, forty thousand, you know, as long as you've got gospel in the title. So, have we recovered the gospel? Would we say successfully? David Calvert, yesterday morning, we had a Beautiful wedding here. Thankfully, the the rain held off. We it's been a busy weekend on this pre, on these premises. I can tell you, but but we were outside. Uh, it was set up for the reception in here, and the Lord was gracious for Forrest and and, and Laura, Forrest Strickland. You know, you remember Forrest played with our worship team and led our worship team a lot uh, when David was gone. But uh, they were married yesterday, and David's message uh, was beautifully gospel-centered. There is so much said about the gospel today. What are we doing as a church to make sure that the gospel finds its right place? Well, again, I suppose it depends on your definition of the gospel. 
1958, Packer was focusing on an emphasis in the gospel that had to do way more with the benefits of the gospel to people than it did about lifting Jesus up. So, for instance, um, people were, 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 were focusing far too much, he said, on the comfort that the gospel brings, the peace and the satisfaction and the happiness that we find in believing the gospel. What's wrong with that? For crying out loud. I mean, my goodness, we all recognize there are beautiful benefits to the gospel for us. And you have to ask the question sometimes, do we even know how to praise God apart from the gospel? Apart from what the gospel does for us? Well, benefits to our psychological well-being are indeed legitimate byproducts of the gospel. But Packer's emphasis was, in his mind, the first concern of the gospel should always be to give glory to God and to lift up Jesus as he was lifted up on the cross. So many, when, when, when contemporary music first began to find its way, well, this recent bout of contemporary music in the 90s, early to mid-90s, uh, so many of the songs were about, oh, Jesus, what you do for me. And, and there's nothing wrong with that except that think about all the hymns of old. All through church history, where has the focus been in our singing? It's been on God. All of a sudden, the focus is on me. The focus is on, oh, how blessed, what a blessing it is. Listen, Part of the reasons that we struggle so much, and I've gone to preaching before I even get into the sermon. But part of the reason we struggle so much, and I'm preaching this at me, is because I'm looking for benefits of the gospel rather than just looking to Jesus. And recognizing what that cross means, the fact that he died for me. So, we're going to see this stark contrast today in our text about where the emphasis, where the focus is going in people's minds. Our text today is Mark 14, 1 to 11. And Jesus identifies a connection to the gospel that I bet you have never shared when you've been witnessing to someone about Jesus. See if you can pick it up when we read. And if you would, please stand as uh, I read Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. And by the way, just again, so that you can be looking for these types of things, the first two verses and the last two verses seem like they belong somewhere else, but it's all part of this, this particular text in this passage. It's all structured in this way. And again, see if you can make sense of that as well. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Once again, the crowds would swell three, four, five times as many people as there were typically in Jerusalem during Passover week. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, 
a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus. Father, um, this is one of those stories that captures our hearts and our imaginations. Lord, we, we pray that it would once again do that and that we would not only think of what a great story this is, but we might desire the heart of this woman who loved Jesus so fully, so completely, that she just didn't care what others thought. We know that love for you only comes from you. And so we stand in need today of your fresh anointing us so that we might love in that way. And we pray that it will be so. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So as we read, change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. There are four different accounts of anointing Jesus given in the scriptures. Luke 7 gives a, an account of a, of a woman who came in and anointed Jesus at the home of Simon. But this was Simon the Pharisee. It was in Galilee. It was at least a year earlier. Has nothing to do with this anointing just before uh, Jesus went to the cross. Mark, Matthew, John, Matthew 26, John 12, all seem to be the same one. That gives us a, it's a little bit tricky with the chronology there. But there are so many connections in those events that it, they seem to be one and the same. And John identifies for us the woman who does this. It's Mary of Bethany. Now, Jesus was reclining at table, which means that this was a formal affair. A joyous occasion, but a very formal affair as well. Um, it, it, it was a big deal. Uh, there were a few really important guests there. Martha, who was serving in her regular capacity. And again, I'm not getting all of this from Mark 14. It's coming in from the other places as well. And you go into it in much more detail in, in home group. If you want to go into that, it's really not the, 
the, the, the main thing. But Martha was serving. Mary was there. And Lazarus, for goodness sake. I mean, Jesus had just raised him from the dead in the very recent past. After he had been dead for four days. He had been in the tomb for four days. Jesus had raised him up. So you can imagine what it was like in the house that night. There was electricity in the air. Now, there's an outside possibility that Simon was the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But more likely, they were guests in Simon's home. And for such a joyous event, the specter of death hung in the air. Well, maybe not at the meal itself. Maybe just in the mind of the reader who has the advantage of hearing the foreboding music of these first two verses that imply Jesus is in big trouble with the religious rulers. From Matthew, we recognize it as Caiaphas, who is spearheading the let's kill Jesus movement. So he wanted to arrest Jesus, but he didn't want to do it during Passover because it would... Listen... In Jerusalem, around Passover, anybody could say anything and it would get the crowds going. The Roman army uh, sent in a great number of extra troops. Everybody was on high alert. The priests didn't want anything going wrong because that would indicate to Rome that they weren't worthy of handling their own town. So they tried to keep things down so they didn't want it to happen during the Passover. Unless... Well, until, I should say, an opportunity presented itself. It's not only at the beginning of this passage that we are confronted with death on what's supposed to be a very joyous occasion, but at the very end, Judas is off to betray Jesus to the very ones who want to kill him. The very ones who say, we have to get rid of this ragamuffin backwater preacher who is causing so much trouble for the leaders. The nation, the nation, I mean. That's why we need to kill him. He's trouble for the nation. So, there's death all over this story. You know what? At... uh, At VBS this week, when I was there, before we had a flood in our home of biblical proportions, you know, we had sort of a Bible story VBS going on in our own home this week, uh, where we had a water line break upstairs, and oh, man, we came home to something uh, Wednesday night after visiting Elise at the hospital. But uh, at VBS, I was thinking, when they were telling the stories You know, it's always a tricky thing to talk about death. We don't have a lot of small children in here. But it's always a tricky thing to talk about death. We are so disconnected from death in our country. I'm I'm really grateful for hospice, you know, that allows people to die at home. Just think, there are people that are 50, 60 years old and have almost never seen anybody die. And that's just not reality. It's not life. There is Death has reigned since Adam and Eve. And when we were going through that program, I was thinking, wow, there's a lot of death in here. And, and you know what I was thinking? Because I'm weird like this. I was thinking, you know what? This is a good thing. Because the f- central focus of Scripture is Jesus' death. And 
pictures were being painted all the way in the Old Testament. And Randall Goodgame did a good job getting that prepared, getting people prepared for the, for the day when Jesus would die so that death would not have to reign anymore. And we're all going out of here unless he comes back, as we've been talking about, and we hope that's before this service is over. I know Allison hopes it's before that ridiculously long flight to Australia, although she is going to be so glad to be back there. And the kangaroos and koalas are going to be glad to see you, Allison, as well. So uh, tell them I said hello if this, this time I'm not making this trip. But honestly, there's a little bit too much death for my liking in this story. I mean, good grief, there's that's at the beginning, it's at the end. So let's get to the body of the focus where we can focus, fo- focus uh, well, okay, we're going to focus on Jesus' death. But why? I mean, it's a festive party. Jesus and his followers had been invited to the home of Simon the leper. That doesn't mean that Simon was a leper when he threw the party. That just didn't happen. Look, clearly he had been, but he wasn't now. And leprosy was not one of those things you got a Z-pack for and it went, went away. You know, you, don't, you just didn't clear it up. You spent the rest of your life not only battling this degenerative disease, but, but being a social pariah where you have to say, unclean, unclean. If anybody gets too close, you have to shout, unclean. <coughs> I'm sure little boys threw rocks at you and made fun of you. No doubt in the midst of all this gloom and doom talk of death. And Jesus had been talking a good bit of it himself. Here tonight is cause for celebration. Simon has been healed. And Simon is a wealthy man because he's throwing this kind of a party. And let's let's have a good time. This is a great night. I mean, just look around you. The crowds are in Jerusalem, and, and, and look, the crowds are for Jesus. Okay, okay. We've had some problem with the religious leaders. We will acknowledge that. But just think, I mean, don't you just feel in your heart? Can't you just feel it in your bones? He's the Messiah. I mean, look at all the, the people that have been healed. Dead have been brought back, or the, the, the dead live again. Men have been brought back from the dead. We've seen him feed thousands and thousands of people with very small provisions twice, not once, twice. He must be the Messiah, and this night just feels like a pre-coronation party. I mean, just look. Look around you. Listen. Smiles everywhere. The laughter is flowing. The food and the wine is exquisite. People... Wait, wait a minute. What is Mary doing with that alabaster? There, that's expensive perfume in there. I mean, that stuff comes from India. You're, she's holding thirty to 40000 and she's just walking care, carelessly. You better be careful. Wait a minute. Wait, Mary. Now she broke it. Somebody collect it quickly. And then she pours it on Jesus while people are saying, No, no. What are you doing? It would be hard for us to fully understand the emotions that flowed 
with the oil on that night. Before we think about Mary's heart, just consider the horror of everyone who was watching. John's gospel tells us that it was Judas who spoke out. Forty this this would equal about forty thousand dollars, thirty to forty thousand dollars in today's <clears throat> wages. And Judas is saying, why this waste? But John also identifies Judas' motives. You know what it was? His motive was. He was a thief. And look, if you've got $40,000 in the bag, who's going to miss one or two? We can give to the poor, give to the needy, me. And give to the poor, give a little to the needy. But Judas obviously had a lot of support that night. There were a lot of people who agreed with him. The Greek is a bit more descriptive than the English. It says that those who were opposed to Mary snorted their indignation. And I mean, and yes, I mean snorted like a horse. Like they were furious. It's just like, you know, when you're watching the World Cup this week and you hear all this whistling and stamping, you know, and it's prolonged. When people are showing their disapproval of a referee's decision, I cannot imagine ever disagreeing with a referee in a ball game or soccer or whatever. But, you know, that's exactly what was going on. It was a visceral reaction, and it was widespread. There were all these people angry with Mary. What a particularly insensitive time. For Mary to do what she did. An absolute waste of resources. Why was it such a big deal at this particular time? During the Passover season, it was customary to give two offerings. I I say the season because Passover was a one-day event, but then right behind it came the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that was seven days. But... In the first century, rarely did authors separate it like Mark did. It's just the Passover. Everybody just knew it as the Passover time. And during this time, there were two offerings. We've already seen one. The widow gave her coins. There was an offering that went to the temple. And there was an offering for benevolence. Just like we we take a benevolence offering on the last Sunday of the month. We're doing that again today at the end of the service. This goes to help those who are in need in our body first, as the New Testament indicates, we are to take care first of the household of God. And then we start looking out, and oftentimes it's through connections that you have. You know someone who is in need, and we're able to help there. But, so it was customary to give to the temple and to give to the poor to do something like that. So, It's not surprising that many saw the the logic of Judas' complaint and joined in with grunts and snorts of disapproval. People were always criticizing Mary. This is the same Mary who in Luke 10 sat at her Lord's feet as Martha served. You remember the deal. I mean, Martha complained, Lord. And, you know, we can, we, we can surmise that she said a little more. You know, 
Mary's sitting out there like a man or something, sitting there listening to teaching. Who does she think she is? Tell her to get in here and help me. And others, don't you know that there were others right ready to say, thank you, Martha, thank you for saying that. That has been driving me crazy with her sitting right there. Until Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you got it wrong. Mary's got it right. You've got it wrong. Once again, everybody is criticizing Mary. And Jesus was always defending her. You know, you expect non-believers to misunderstand your heart for the Lord. But apparently Mary was fanatical enough in her love for Jesus. She just didn't care. And, and, And other believers thought she was off her rocker. I mean, she's crazy. But Jesus kept saying, I love it. Leave her alone. Mary has chosen the best possible thing that she could. So what was Mary's motivation for anointing Jesus? Well, it makes for a really great sermon. And I hope this is the case, but I don't know. That she was doing exactly what Jesus said. That she was anointing him for his burial. She was doing this symbolically, knowing that Jesus was going to die. Now, if that's the case, she was the only one of Jesus' followers who knew. And if she knew, and if she believed that Jesus was going to die, she would have received that at Jesus' feet, listening to and believing his word when everyone else was so hurried about doing things for Jesus. And Jesus said she's chosen the best thing. Could be that Mary was certain that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, that's a very good possibility. And she was symbolically anointing the king. And maybe she was doing just like the disciples did. We've seen them doing this over and over. Where they're sort of trying to nudge Jesus. Saying, look, death, come on, please. You're the king. Come on, let's get about it. This is a good time. People are here. They love you. Let's go for it. It is also absolutely possible that Mary's heart just overflowed with joy. She celebrated that night with family and friends and with her master and Lord, Jesus. With any of these possible motives... Mary's extravagant expression of love was an act of worship. The Apostle Paul may have had this act of worship in mind when he said, if I give all that I have to the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned and I don't have love, I'm nothing. Because the criticism of Mary was, give it to the poor And Paul said, it's your heart that really matters. How horrible, how awful it's going to be for people to have done so much and not really examine personal motives. And the Lord gets there and says, it's wood, hay, stubble. You know, I appreciate all that you gave, except that I don't because I own everything and and, and you did it so that you would be noticed. You did it for this. I mean, this is clearly Mary's not trying to be noticed. I mean, she was horrified when she was noticed. 
We have to assume, don't we, that Mary had the right to do this? That she didn't go into Simon's house and say, hey, that's pretty cool, alabaster, I bet there's nard in there. Bam! You know, I don't think he'll mind and Jesus will defend. No, we have to assume that this was hers. And she had the right to do anything she wanted to. Listen, again, I'm preaching to myself, but here's a lesson for all of us. Mind your own business. Quit judging what other people are doing for the Lord or not doing. The fact is, whatever your gift is, you're gifted to serve the body in that way. And some of you, I'm out there sitting with you, some of you, Spend so much time worrying about why someone, someone who is gifted in another way is not serving the body like you're serving the body. Well, if everybody would just give like I do. If everybody would just serve like I do. if everybody, We're all different parts of a body. We're not all an elbow, you know. We, God's given us and we need every part to do what it's called to do. Some of you have been called to pray. Some of you have been called to, And some have been called to extravagant expressions of love. And when we rejoice with them doing that, then we participate. That's not our natural inclination. Our natural inclination is to say, what? What? And snort like a horse. Look at, oh, and by the way, Mary obviously had thought about it at least at some level before. And she didn't consider this loss. It was hers. It was worth a year's wages. And she poured it out on Jesus. So look at how he responded to the activity that had brought the party to a standstill. First, the defense. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Can you imagine the roller coaster ride that Mary's emotions took in all of this, you know? I mean, when the men in the group started snorting their anger at her for wasting the ointment, I imagine she had a moment of of doubt. Mary, what have you done? How could you possibly? What a stupid thing to do. And she's thinking, well, well. Oh, no, what have I done? And then Jesus steps in and he says, hey, stop it right now. Stop it. You leave Mary alone. What do you mean with this criticism? She's done a beautiful thing for me. I imagine Mary's first reaction to that was relief, then gratitude, then a love that is almost beyond what we can imagine. Jesus continued, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. It would be wrong on so many levels to say that Jesus intended for his followers to ignore the poor. I mean, what a contradiction to his entire life. Jesus, who did more for the poor than anybody in history? 
than Jesus did. He healed the broken. He fed the hungry. He preached the gospel to the poor. And preaching the gospel to the poor is the kindest thing you can possibly do. Because prosperity typically follows the gospel in individual lives and in nations' lives. Because when you start living according to the gospel, this gospel that we started off talking about that needs recovery, when you live according to the gospel, your life improves. You just watch it. It'll be borne out over and over and over. How many people do you know that were heading for disaster believe Jesus and their lives are very well put together now? They're prosperous. Look. It doesn't all last. I mean, look, that gospel, you know that cycle? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That thing cycles all the way through our lives. But believing the gospel typically improves the lives of the people who believe. I, I, I'm, I'm, again, now... Do not misunderstand me. That's not what I'm saying is, okay, all you need to do is preach the gospel to the poor and give to the country club. You know, if you've got anything left over from your tithing, give to the God. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus was saying. Absolutely not. He was saying so much more than that. If you want to, more than if you want to help the poor, preach to them. You may not know this, but when Jesus said, you will always have the poor with you, he was quoting from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 1511. And what have we learned when Jesus quotes one verse? What have, we, what have we learned? Find out what the context is. He expected his hearers to either know the context or to find it out. Because he was saying so much more than the poor you have with him. This is in a section where God is telling his covenant people to take care of the poor. Because they're all, and, and to be diligent, because there will always be a need until the end of the age and the kingdom is established. And Jesus is in charge of everything. There will always be a need for us to help the poor. It's the heart of God to help those who are in need. And we are to do that. Jesus was not in any way discouraging a heart to help the poor. He was talking about priorities. And even though he was pointing to the fact that he would soon be off the scene, so it was best to focus on on him in the present, then focus on the poor after he, he was gone. There's instruction in Mary's beautiful priorities that he was affirming. Our purpose statement here at Grace Community Church is exalt the Lord, establish believers, engage the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Which of those should we do first? Yes is the answer. You know, we should be doing all three at once. And yet there is a priority. One, two, three. Look, what if we're witnessing to everything that moves? And our church is a mess. We're not going to be able to sustain that witness for long. And what if we are building up believers and we're so busy serving and in activity That we're not really worshiping God like we're supposed to. Then what are we doing? There is a priority. Worship God. Build up believers. Share this life-changing news to the world. And of course we do them all three. But in your heart, never lose focus. 
But above all, Jesus is our number one priority, individually and corporately. Jesus told his disciples, you guys need to learn from from Mary. You're blasting her. You need to learn from her. Then Jesus stated the central focus uh, of this text. Okay, well, the central focus of Scripture. Well, the central focus of all of history. Jesus is going to die. It's a sacrifice for sin so that those who believe might live instead of die. Jesus said about Mary, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And there it goes again, talking about death. I mean, they're trying to celebrate. And he, if they only knew what Jesus' death meant, how important it was for Jesus to die. How important? It was such a big deal that Jesus said Mary's extravagant act of worship will be uh, remembered whenever the gospel is preached. I bet you have never uh, witnessed to someone by saying all are under the condemnation of sin and Jesus and, and deserve to die and, and have eternal punishment as a result of their sin. But Jesus came to die so that all who would call on the name of the Lord, believe, repent of their sins and believe in him, will have everlasting life. And Mary anointed Jesus for his burial. I bet you've never said that, you know. Which begs the question, why is this a part of the gospel? It's because this is the gospel. This is the gospel. All of this is the gospel. We didn't have a mean God in the Old Testament and a new God in the New Testament. He's the same God. He was showing the punishment that we deserve in the Old Testament and His love overflowed and abounded and His patience was amazing to people over and over again in the Old Testament. Just think about the problems you have faced this week that are answered in the gospel cycle. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This life we live as believers will always be a war that rages under the shadow of the cross. Constantly we have to be brought back to the cross. The Lord has allowed me to see my desperate need of the cross. And I'm so thankful that it was Jesus who died. And not me that suffers the condemnation of God. Our only hope of making sense of this life is Jesus' death and resurrection. No wonder... Jesus defended and praised Mary. Do you remember when you were a kid and you had this little box of treasures? You think about this more with little girls and little boys. Little girls would have, you know, buttons and hairpins and just different things in there that were very meaningful to them. Guys might have little race cars and 
action figure, little hero, action figure heroes. Or Obviously, I didn't have any act heroes in my little box, I suppose, when I was a kid. It wouldn't have looked like much to most people, but it meant something to you. Jesus has a very strange treasure box. There are a few coins in there from a widow. Now there's a broken alabaster jar. What have you contributed to that box that Jesus treasure so much how has the gospel of Jesus Christ affected you are you content to play it safe so that all around will nod in approval yes I yes God bless you or are you willing to love Jesus so extravagantly it just doesn't matter what other people think let's pray